connected than ever before. In seconds, we can move around the world and take ourselves into virtually any room other than the one we are currently in. Dinner tables text, but don't talk. Friends surf, but can't relate. We remain trapped in a cycle of more notifications and less interactions, more texts and less laughter, more streaming and less eye contact. We are exhausted by the possibilities at our fingertips and the treadmill is only getting faster. But what if it doesn't have to be that way? What if we were intentional? What if technology could enable us to pursue relationships rather than avoid them? What would our families look like? What would our friendships look like? What would it look like to use technology with purpose? What would it look like to reconnect? Well, we're in the middle of a series called Reconnect, and specifically today, we're going to be diving into the topic of marriage. And even as I maybe say that word, some of you are going, man, I I don't know if I feel comfortable talking about my marriage right now, that there's just some stuff going on. I'm not totally sure about that. Maybe some of you want to get married and you're not married yet. Maybe some of you are single and that is something that you have landed into and, and you feel like God has called you into that. And you're going, could this message have anything to do with me? Well, for those of you that are preparing for marriage or that are married, my hope and my desire is that at the end of our time together, that you would have a deeper commitment and a deeper sense of what actually happened at that moment when you said, I do. At that moment when you said, I do, you made a profound decision that God wants to use to actually change you and to change the world. But for those of you that are single and you're going, could this have anything to do with me? It absolutely does. And here's why. Because when God talks about marriage in the scriptures, he oftentimes, he oftentimes uses it to actually point us to a deeper relationship with himself. And so no matter what age or stage you find yourself in, I believe God wants to speak to you in a powerful way. And if you, for those of you that are married or that plan to be married, if you want to have a marriage like no other, you've got to understand it and think about it like no other, like, like no one else is thinking about it. And maybe some of you see the marriages around you and you go, there is no way I want that. Or maybe some of you are in a marriage where you're going, I didn't actually want this. Well, what if there was hope? What if there was the potential that as you reconnect with each other, as you reconnect the idea of what marriage could be, maybe, just maybe, God could begin to change some things. God could begin to bring healing. God could begin to bless the world around you through your marriage. Well, I, I thought it, was, it would be appropriate to start with um, the picture of Sarah and I when we got married. So I want to show you this picture of Sarah and I on our wedding day. Every service is left. I'm not sure. Um, this is a picture of us on our wedding day. Here, here, here's maybe why you're laughing, because it's the question every single one of you just asked yourself when you saw this photo. You thought, and you asked yourself, was he 12 when he got married? <laughs> right? That's okay. I get that. I was 14, okay? So I wasn't 12. We were really young, but, um, but this was our wedding day. And I remember, I remember waiting for Sarah and the whole ceremony happened and we left and Sarah and I were absolutely convinced we just completely knew each other. I mean, we were like, we are best friends. We know everything about each other. And now nine years later, I'm like, I don't know if I even knew that girl. You know what I mean? I mean, we have, there has been so much growth and change in our marriage, but how did we get to this whole thing? How did, how did we get here? And, and where did marriage come from? And, and maybe you're thinking, I'm married 
marriage is something that like the state instituted or marriage was something that, you know, someone came up with when, when we landed here in America. No, 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 marriage, marriage goes all the way back to the very beginning. Find me in Genesis chapter two. Genesis is the first book in the Bible. Chapter two, the second chapter in the story of the history of the world. In Genesis chapter two, we learn about the beginning of marriage and our big idea for these few moments right now is that marriage is a gift from God that paints a picture of life with God. That marriage is a gift from God that paints a picture of what life with God actually looks like. Genesis chapter two, beginning verse 18, I should say this too. We are gonna touch on some really um, challenging passages. So we're gonna dive into some passages that maybe, maybe it's one of the reasons you don't really like Christians or you don't like the church or you don't like the Bible is because you've read some of these verses before and it's just like a total turnoff for you. And my hope is we're not gonna avoid them, but we're gonna actually dive into them and maybe, maybe there's a better way to understand those. Verse 18 begins like this. The Lord God said, it is not good for man to be alone. This is the very first time in the, in the history of the world, in the creation story, where God says something is not good. He has over and over and over again said, this is good, this is good. As he has created each thing, he has said, it's good, it's good, it's good. But for the very first time, he says, it is not good for man to be alone. Now, the majority of this sermon is going to focus in on your marriage, but my hope is that especially for those of you that find yourself single, that, you would, that we would think bigger about this. That even this idea of not being alone in its original context right here, it's like most basic application is talking about marriage. But there are deeper roots here about the nature of humanity, about the design that we were created for community. You see, in fact, once you get to the New Testament, once you get to the New Testament, you see a whole new ethic beginning to birth that singleness is actually God's preference. It's actually one of the things that Pastor Glenn is gonna be talking about next week, that that singleness is affirmed. I mean, you've got Jesus you know, kind of had an impact on the world. And then you've got Paul kind of had an impact on the world. You've got these leaders, you've got these people, you've got the God of the universe, single, and they're used profoundly. And so singleness is, is, is not anything less that God absolutely calls people to singleness. And that actually, that in the New Testament, that actually becomes a, a preference. But in this, in this application right here, we're talking specifically about husband and wife. But at large, at large, God wired us for community. God says, it's not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now, maybe you've heard those words, helper and suitable. And you're like, really, really? Like, like did God in all of his glory create a woman so that she could pick up her husband's underwear? I mean, is that really God's like grand design here? Is that what he's talking about? Oh, it's so much bigger. It's so much bigger. Let's, let's, jump into, let's jump into the original language here. When it says, I will make a helper suitable for him. The original word helper comes from the Hebrew word azer, which, which we've talked about this before, but the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. And so the Hebrew word for helper is azer. And here's what's amazing about this word. This word helper gets used all over the place in the Old Testament to specifically describe when God shows up on the scene. That it's specifically used to describe when there's divine assistance or there's some kind of like military assistance that's, that's, that's helping some kind of campaign. And so, you know, as, as this is being penned and as God is painting the picture of human relationships and specifically husband and wife, he's thinking of helper in terms of the way he actively engages with humanity. 
But then the word suitable, I mean, what the heck does that mean? Well, the Hebrew word for that is neged, which literally means like opposite of him, matching him, like opposite of him. You see, when you get married, you marry somebody who is like opposite of you. And you may have a lot of things in common. There may be a lot of differences between you, but you have somebody who God has created to be your like opposite. And and I, I think about that in terms of this. There's oftentimes in our marriage where Sarah will say the like opposite thing I want her to say, and yet it is exactly what I need to hear. That oftentimes Sarah, as she is leading in our marriage and as she's loving and serving me and as she's a helper suitable and I'm a helper suitable, that, that she takes on this role of speaking to me in a way that I need to hear that can be challenging. I remember one time, and I'm, I'm, I'm ashamed that she even had to say this, but I remember at one time I was uh, driving home from work and I'd been in a long season of just constantly working and, and being out really late hours and then coming home and still working and, and neglecting the family. And I, I was just so focused on whatever it was that I was doing for that season. And I remember I got home and I could just tell that Sarah was frustrated. I could tell that she was hurt about something. And she looked at me and she said, Eric, I feel like you love work more than you love us. And when she said that, it was exactly what I didn't want to hear, but it was exactly what I needed to hear. See, God, when he's creating the first marriage, he's not talking about anybody functioning as a doormat. He's talking about the power and the ability to speak into each other's lives in a way that maybe no one else can. Well, the story continues. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock and the birds in the sky and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man and he brought her to the man. What in the world is he talking about? I mean, that just doesn't, what, what is the imagery here? What's the metaphor? Well, scholar Matthew Henry, he has a beautiful way of describing verse 21. This is what he says. Not made out of his head to top him, not out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected and near to his heart to be beloved. See, even in this first story of the creation of the first marriage, God has this idea of equality of like opposites coming together. Well, then then Adam sees his bride for the very first time. He's never seen women. I mean, a woman. He's literally been looking at giraffes. You know what I mean? Like just hairy creatures and, and a porcupine and, and just all these things, frogs and just, and snakes, like lots of snakes, right? Just coming down the aisle and he's going, what is going on? Like, is there nobody for me? And then all of a sudden, God brings Eve to him and check it out. He literally just explodes in music. He explodes in song. He says this, this now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman for she was taken out of man. The most creative name he came up with is, whoa, man, right? That's the best he came up with in that moment. He was just overwhelmed, absolutely overwhelmed. And then, and then, And then the picture of what marriage could be 
is painted so clearly in this imagery. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. This word united is so powerful. At its, at its core, it has a picture of clinging to something, sticking to something, holding on for dear life to something. In fact, it gets used all throughout the scriptures to, to the way that the NIV oftentimes translates it is to hold fast. He says that the husband and wife will be united to each other and they will be one. They will be one. A scholar I was reading this week said that, that behind these words, behind these words, there are two implications Behind the idea of being united and one are passion and permanence. Passion and permanence. Married friends, I want to ask you a question. Do not elbow the person next to you. This is a question for you. Would you characterize your marriage as having passion and permanence? And maybe you're saying, we've got a lot of passion right now, but I'm not sure they're coming home. Or maybe we've got a lot of permanence, but... We haven't really looked at each other's eyes in a while. You see, behind the very first marriage is a story of people who have passion and permanence, but it's not just about them. In fact, in the first pages of the first marriage of the story of the world is a picture of how God wants us to actually connect with him. And so whether you're married or not, this is even the deeper application. We find it in Deuteronomy chapter 13, verse four. It says this. It is the Lord your God you must follow and him you must revere. Keep his commands and obey him, serve him and hold fast to him. So you get it? The the picture that God is painting is marriage as beautiful and as amazing as it is actually is pointing to something far more eternal, far larger, far more important. And it's that you and I would be people who hold on to God the way a husband and wife hold on to one another that God desires to have a permanence and a passion in his relationship with you because that was his design from the very beginning. All of a sudden, sin enters the story of the world and there's power dynamics and ruling and all kinds of mess and chaos. And if you read the Old Testament, you will read about some gnarly marriages. I mean, just jacked up marriages and people. It's crazy. It's a good lesson of what not to do. But then in the New Testament, in the New Testament, we find ourselves in a place where in light of what Christ has done, Paul, who formerly you know, was against Christianity, now has given his life to building the church and serving Jesus. He begins to write letters of how is it that our relationship with Christ spills over into the ways in which we engage with people and specifically in our marriages. And so big idea number two is that you need to have a vision for your marriage. And the vision that scripture lays out is one of mutual submission. In fact, Andy Stanley, this guy, uh, this pastor, he says, marriage is a submission competition. And, and maybe, maybe again, as I, as I flip through some of these verses and these passages, you're going, I, I've heard this next one, Eric. I've heard Ephesians 5, and I just don't like it. I just don't like what it says, what it describes. Well, maybe, just maybe, the way we've been understanding it is all wrong. So find me in Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. We're actually going to begin in verse 22. And this is where maybe a lot of marriage sermons go. Or this is where a lot of marriage sermons begin is in Ephesians 5, 22. Why? 
wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands. And every woman said, yay, right? (laughs) Here's what's so dangerous about beginning a teaching on marriage with verse 22. is because it is not the beginning of the teaching on marriage. That in fact, in fact, the beginning of the teaching on marriage begins in verse 21, where Paul says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And maybe when you hear that, maybe you're going, wait, really, what? Because maybe, maybe the way you've understood that before is, no, that's talking about everyone else in the body of Christ. We're called to submit to each other. But then specifically, when we're talking about husband and wives, it's the wife's job to submit to the husband. Well, not only, just just for one reason, that that doesn't totally make sense because I I just don't understand how I'm called to submit to every other woman in the body of Christ but not submit to my wife. That doesn't really fully make sense to me. And yet there's even a bigger reason that that doesn't make any sense and it's because of this. In verse 22, when you read the words, wives, submit, when you read that word submit, in the original language, it's not there. The word submit is not there. The word submit here is inferred because it is borrowed from verse 21. And so where 21 says, submit to one another, that's the general, submit to one another, mutual submission to one another out of reverence for Christ, then in the original language, what it says then is wives also to your husbands. And as the letter continues, it's continuing to borrow that verb from the original overarching idea that we are called to be people who mutually submit to one another. Well, it continues. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Now, I get it. As I read that too, I'm challenged. I'm going, what does that even mean? What does it mean that the husband is the head of the wife? I mean, is he, as, as he brings up Jesus and compares it to Jesus, is he saying that the husband is the Lord of his wife? No, Jesus is our only Lord. Is he saying that husbands are the savior of their wives? No, Christ alone saves. Here's what I think is going on here. I don't think he's describing, and I don't think he's comparing titles I think he's comparing actions. I think he's comparing how Christ acted towards the church and towards us and how husbands are called to act towards their wives. And this is what I mean. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. You see, what what kind of picture is he painting here? He's saying there is mutual submission. Wives, submit to your husbands, absolutely. But husbands, also submitting to your wives. And husbands, how are you called to be the head of your wife? I'm not sure if I even fully understand all that that means, but I can guarantee you it at least means that husbands, it is our job to be the very first to lay down our lives. That it is our job to be the very first to serve. That it is our job to be the very first like Christ was the first to love and to lay down and to give up and to serve. You see, sometimes these verses get, get, in my opinion, taken out of context and used to say, well, if there's an argument and, you know, the brother wins, right? Or if there's an argument, this is how it's going to go down. And I think the picture that Paul is painting of Christian biblical marriage is one of mutual submission where as husbands, as the head of our wives, 
that actually means that we're the first to lay down and to serve and to die to ourselves. But how do we do that? I mean, what, is, what does it look like to be the lead sacrificer? I mean, what does it look like to, to have a marriage that is mutually submissive and, and loving and respecting and honoring each other? Well, I think it actually has to do a lot with our posture in our marriages. And this is true whether you're talking about a marriage or a friendship or a family relational dynamic, that your posture dictates everything about the relationship. And so you have one of two options in terms of your posture. You can either have a marriage where you are leaning in or you can have a marriage where you are leaning back. You could have a marriage where you are leaning in and saying, what can I give? How can I serve? How can I be a blessing? What can I do? Or you can have a marriage that leans back and says, what is this thing got for me? What does this relationship have for me? How, how is this person going to serve and meet my needs? So I want to give you four really practical, quick ways to have a posture of leaning in. The first is this, serve. Just serve each other. Make a commitment that you are going to start by serving, that you are going to recognize the areas. Now, I'm tired. I mean, this absolutely applies to a roommate dynamic. This applies to a best friend. This applies in your work environment. It applies in your marriages. To make a commitment that as you lay down your life, that's going to look like you serving. That's going to look like you leading out. You're going to recognize where the needs are, and you're going to be someone who meets those needs. Number two, you're going to listen. You're going to serve and then you're going to listen. And you're going to listen with your palms up. I'm going to give you a challenge at the end of our time together. And it's going to involve you having your palms up as a way of listening and receiving what somebody has to share with you. And so in your marriages, be somebody who chooses to listen. And, and here's, here's a lesson I've learned. I think this is incredibly helpful in any kind of tension or conflict that you have. Make a commitment to when that person is communicating to you, instead of thinking about what you're going to say, really listen and then repeat back to them what you heard them say. So if you've got some tension in your marriage right now, I wanna challenge you that as you're talking about it, instead of letting the person speak and then preparing your rebuttal, let them speak and then repeat back to them what you heard them say. And here's why that's such a powerful principle. Because it may not resolve the conflict right away, but it will communicate understanding. It will communicate that you're listening. It will communicate that you are actually hearing one another. Number three, number three, speak. Speak words of life and encouragement into each other. If you're married, you should be the biggest encourager of your spouse. I mean, you should be the cheerleader. You should be the one, whether you're the husband or the wife, you should be the one that is building them up, that is speaking life into them, that is encouraging them. You should be, and and maybe you're going, you know what, Uh, uh, Eric, I'm sorry, I'm just not good at that, man. Uh, I said I love you at the altar. Isn't that good enough? You know what I mean? And I'm going, here's the thing. You may say right now, I'm just not good at that. I'm not good at that. Okay, I have some really profound wisdom for you. Okay, this is just gonna rock your socks. Here we go, profound wisdom. Get better, just do it. Just get better work on it. I mean, this is not rocket science. This is noticing the other person and choosing to call out what you love about them. Choosing to be the biggest encourager in the room. Taking down notes as you see them doing something totally awesome. Take down those notes and specifically encourage them. That is going to breathe life into your marriage. And then the last step, the last step is repeat it. Just repeat it. This isn't something to check off your list because this last week, Pastor Eric said you should do this and you did it and you're done. No, this is a weekly, daily, yearly rhythm that you get in. In 1 Corinthians chapter seven, 
Paul continues this idea of mutual submission in a way that would have just rocked the first century and, and those listeners. First Corinthians chapter seven, verse four says, the wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. Everyone in the first century is saying, duh, at this point. And they're just like, yes, obviously, we, we know that. We've heard that over and over again. This part would have stunned them. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. This means, gentlemen, we've got to listen and we've got to be open. And we've got to recognize that what our wives are trying to say to us, we need to hear. And that's a hard, uncomfortable, challenging thing. Isaiah, can I see that mirror real quick, bud? I brought this mirror with me. I don't know if you've ever seen one of these mirrors. It's, it's, it's one of those mirrors that um, is like magnified like a hundred times. You see them in hotel rooms. Has everyone seen these before, right? They, they're not like the normal mirror that's up on your wall. They're that one that I don't really know why you would ever want this, right? But, but you have this, like I'm even looking at it right now and I'm like, I thought I had, you know, two chins. I have three, according to this mirror. <laughs> according to this mirror. So I'm not sure I trust it. Um, but uh, I always tell couples whenever... I do premarital counseling with them that your spouse, your spouse is kind of like one of these magnified mirrors. And at first they're going to reveal a picture of yourself that you may like some of what they show you as you're in relationship with them, but there's going to be things that they reveal about you, selfishness, pride, secrecy, finances, whatever it may be that as you look at it, you're going to go, I don't like that picture of myself. And I'm absolutely convinced that a lot of times people get divorces because they don't like the picture they see in the mirror. And you see, instead of running away and blaming the mirror, what if we understood that our spouse's unique job was to reveal to us the areas where God wants to work on our lives, where God wants to sharpen us and challenge us and chip away at us and refine us into the image of himself. Here you go, Isaiah. Thanks, bro. Good catch. Good job, Isaiah. Number three. Number three. We're going to talk about the soulmate myth. Now, I'm not even going to raise my hand, but I, I talked about this a little bit in our high school ministry a few weeks ago, and I just broke a ton of teenagers' hearts. I mean, it was just, it was bad because they've been waiting, they've been thinking, man, there's a soulmate out there for me. And I basically said, I don't think so. I don't think there's a soulmate out there for you. And here, here's why I think when we, when we think there's a soulmate out there, there's this one perfect person out there for us. What happens is as soon as there are challenges or frustrations in our marriage, we begin to think, oh, maybe I married the wrong person. Maybe I missed it. I think the biblical teaching is, is better than that. It's that you made a choice, that God, of course, knows who you are going to marry, but that you made a choice, that you owned that decision. And as soon as you recognize that, that you made this commitment before God and before others, then it is you who needs to work on things. And it is your spouse who needs to work on things. I want to show you a few verses real quick. First Corinthians chapter seven, verse eight and nine says this. Let's go to verse eight. Now to the unmarried and the widows, I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried as I do. Verse nine. But if they cannot control themselves, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. I mean, I don't know if you kind of grew up in the same world I grew up in where I was just thinking, you know, I was going to walk around and one day God was just going to plop like, Sarah. And I was just going to be like on this like search for Sarah. And I would just know when I found Sarah, right? 
And here's the thing. When I found Sarah, I was like, I got to marry this girl as quickly as possible. You know what I mean? Like, this ain't going to happen again for me. And I I pursued her and chased after her, but we made a decision and a commitment together. And then in verse 39, Paul ends this argument this way. He says, a woman is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to marry anyone she wishes, but he must belong to the Lord. So what Paul is teaching here is he's saying, there are, of course, better people that you can marry and, and not so wise people you can marry, but it's critical that you marry somebody who loves Jesus, but that there is freedom in that decision. And here's why that is so powerful, because when you recognize that you have freedom in your marriage to make things better or to make things worse, then you are motivated to work on it. Then you can't just excuse it and say, you know what? He's always gonna be like that. She's always gonna be like that. I must have married the wrong person. I'm just kind of stuck here. No, you made this choice and things could get better. And as soon as you recognize that, and as soon as you start to live into that, as soon as you start to lean into your marriage, all of a sudden the people around you are gonna be impacted deeply. I remember when Charlie was, uh, my son, he's a year and a half. He, he's almost six years old and he, he was a year and a half and he was sitting in the kitchen. He was in a high chair and, and he was eating his dinner and Sarah and I were in the kitchen and I just dipped her down and, and gave her a kiss real quick. And after I kissed her, we both looked over at Charlie and he was mid-bite, right? And he stopped eating, which we don't do in the Holmstrom family. We don't stop eating. And so he literally stopped eating for a second to just lock eyes and watch what was happening. See, our kids are watching. In fact, if you're married, I don't care how old your kids are, how young they are. Here's a question I want to ask you. And, and please, I, I hope that this question inspires you towards a better marriage. But the question is this, is your marriage showing your kids what to desire or what to avoid? Is your marriage showing your kids what to desire or what to avoid? Because they're watching. The world's watching. I, I remember a few months ago, a few months ago, uh, we were going on a date. Sarah and I were doing a date night. And, and as we were about to leave, all of a sudden, Charlie and Brinley and Lila, they just started crying, right? And they said, don't leave, don't leave, don't leave. And they started crying, right? And I said to them, I said, guys, no, we're not going to do that. I want you to stop right now. We're not going to cry about this. Because here's the thing, you guys. The best gift I can give you is a great relationship with your mom. I mean, it's the best gift I can give you is a great relationship with your mom. So here's what we're going to do. From now on in the Holmstrom family, whenever mom and I announce that we are going on a date, I want a round of applause, okay? I want you going crazy for us because this is the best thing we could do. And so now, literally, in our family, whenever we announce we're going on a date, we lean into them and they go, Yay, <laughs> yay. And we're hoping the, you know, the excitement raises, but I want our kids to see, and I want the world to see what it looks like to have a marriage that ultimately reflects Christ. And maybe some of you, the, the date night thing, you haven't been doing it in a while. Or maybe you're going, and if you're stuck in this situation like we, like Sarah and I often are, we're always going, man, as soon as we like finally have some time, just the two of us, we just want to talk about logistics. You know what I mean? We just want to like, we, we got to get into who's going to drop off this kid and, you know, diapers and, and events and activities. And it, there's just so much to talk about. So we've made a commitment that here's what we do. That before we go on our dates with each other, each one of us writes down five questions. Five questions that we want to ask each other. And maybe some of you are going, I'm just not good on the spot. That's why you have time. That's why you have time. Spend the week writing down questions. And then as soon as we get to our date, instead of dealing with all the logistics, we talk about those questions. 
We, we, we get to know each other even more. And even after nine years, I'm still learning stuff all the time. And I talk with people who have been married for decades and they're still learning things about each other because they're choosing to lean into it. And then lastly, number four, are you together forever? Like, you know, some, some theologies, some, some ways of thinking talk about marriage being an eternal thing. Well, in the scriptures, the, the picture that is painted is that marriage actually has an expiration date because marriage points to something larger. And so marriage actually has an expiration date, but eternity with Jesus does not. Maybe there's some of you who you just, marriage has beaten you up and it's challenged you. you you've lost a spouse. That's just really, really hard. I, I wanna give you a hope and an encouragement and a reminder that the best of marriages are really pointing towards something that will actually last for all of eternity. Jesus was um, standing in front of this group of teachers and they said, so there's this woman and she marries this one guy and then he dies and then she marries his brother and he dies and she marries the next brother on and on and on until she had married the seventh brother and, and then she ultimately died. In the end, who is she married to? And Jesus clearly says, that there is no marriage in heaven and you will not be given in marriage in heaven. Because you see, marriage points to something far bigger than itself. As we wrap up, I wanna invite the, the worship team up and I wanna close with a few thoughts. Number one is this, nobody wins in marriage. Nobody wins in marriage. It's a submission competition, but nobody's winning. It's not about, it's not about out... Um, you know, being smarter or better or whatever than each other or being able to catch each other. It's not about that. Then in fact, you're either growing together or you're growing apart. Those are the two paths. And I can tell you, I, the grass is not greener. It ain't greener. It's deader. It's not greener. And, and maybe there's been some miscommunication. Maybe there's been some betrayal. Maybe there's been some hurt and some pain. Maybe there have been some decisions that have been made. Maybe the last 15 years of your marriage have just been horrific. Well, here's what's awesome about believing in a God who can change the world, who can rise from the tomb, is that your past does not have to roll over into your future that you and I can decide if our past will roll over into our future. And so if you're married, or if you're not married, if you just have a really great friend or a roommate or whoever it may be, but especially for those of you that are married, here's what I'm gonna ask you to try. I'm gonna ask you tonight, to once you get home and maybe you get the kids to bed, maybe you put the projects away, you turn off the TV, you silence your phone, you put that away. You get all the distractions out of there and, and you sit across from one another. And I want you to put your palms on your lap, not, not crossed like this, right? Because that communicates a lot. But to put your palms on your lap and I want you to ask each other two questions. And as these questions are being asked, I want you to be open and listening and repeating to each other. And don't stay on the surface, go deeper. And the first question is this, how are we doing? Just a real honest question. How are we doing? And then number two, I want you to ask this question. What can we be doing? So maybe the how are we doing is gonna reveal some really awesome things and some really challenging things. Well, question number two determines what posture you're going to take. 
If your answer to what can we be doing is, I don't know, then you've just leaned back. But if your answer to what can we be doing is, let's reach out for help. Let's talk about that more. Let's share this with each other. That is a posture of leaning in. So if you want a marriage like no other, you've got to make a commitment to think about it and to live in it like no other. Well, we have some great resources for you. If, if, if Whether you're dating or engaged or married, you can go to purposechurch.com slash marriage. We have a merge class. We have marriage mentoring. Even in your program, we have a meant to be marriage series that is currently going on right now. We as a church want to come alongside you because we believe, we believe that your marriage, that God could use your marriage to change the world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Thank you so much for your teaching and your reminders about what marriage looks like and how you desire for it to be. And Lord, I pray that wherever we find ourselves, that whether we're single, dating, engaged, or married, Lord, that that with the relationships in our lives, and if we're married with that marriage relationship, that we would choose to lean in and ask the question, how are we doing? And what can we be doing? God, I pray that the marriages here at Purpose Church would be something that communities and families and friendships and workplaces and children and grandparents look at and say, man, I believe in God because there's no way that's possible apart from him. God, help us to reconnect. Amen.